Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Lonely Artist podcast. I'm your host, Ariane, and today I have two very special guests, Dave Baker, a writer and illustrator based in LA, and Nicole Gux. Is that how you pronounced your last name? Uh, it's Gu, but you're oh. close. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gu, a cartoonist and illustrator uh, working in LA as well. You guys both have an extensive uh, body of work, but today we're going to be talking about your most recent endeavor, Everyone is Tulip. Um, this is a story centered around an aspiring actress, uh, Becca, and her rise to stardom. So I'm very interested to see what you guys are going to be uh, sharing with us about the story and you know, just getting your perspective since you created this wonderful piece of work. So again, thank you so much for being here. Um, I always like whenever I find something that I really like, I'll read it and I won't stop until it's done because <laughs> I just need that instant gratification. <laughs> but for you guys who made it, I mean, I'm sure this project took so very long. It must have been kind of a, a painful experience if, if you're anything like me. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about how long does it take to create something like this and what do you have to go through in order to make this? Well, it's all kind of dependent on what your life is like at the time and what are the things you have going on because this book actually ended up taking us probably about five years to make, but it was because I um, we started it um, together and we didn't have a publisher set up. We just decided to start working on the book and we um, were kind of working away and pitching the book around and kind of in the middle of that process, I ended up taking on a job drawing Shadow of the Batgirl for DC. So for about a year, I was drawing both books at the same time. And then finally we got a publisher for Everyone is Tulip and I got to focus a little more on that. But the process itself, you know, it takes years to make a book like this between, you know, doing the development, talking about what we want the story to be, all, and Dave sitting down and writing it, and then obviously a process of thumbnails and pencils and inks, and then we brought on a colorist named Ellie Hall to help us do the colors. All of that takes more time than you think it's going to, and every time I work on a project, I always a lot a good like six months after I think I'm going to be done with it for extra time of just, you don't know what's going to happen at the end. You don't know what problems you're going to run into. You don't know how much time it's going to take to fix something. You're, there's all these weird unforeseen um, things that can come up that um, you really just kind of have to buckle down and know that this is probably going to take longer than you think it is almost every time, at least for me. I don't know about other people. Um, but yeah, so it ended up taking about five years in total from, right. you know, inception of the idea to publishing. And what about you, Dave? Like, from the writer's perspective, like, how long did it take you to to write everything and to finish uh, writing it? I don't know. I, I really don't know how long it took me to... I really don't know how long <laughs> it took me to write it. I feel like I probably wrote it over the course of like three months four months something like that the the soul crushing part of it is transitioning from being a self-publisher and just making the stuff we want to make and then having to I mean it's a good problem people we dealt with were great 
but dealing with publishers, there's, you know, editorial reviews and approvals processes and design passes and dealing with distributors and like, you know, all of this stuff just eats up so much time. Like, I I feel like we finished, I think we like finished the book like eight months ago, six months ago. Could have been that long. I don't know. Probably beginning of the year at least. Wow. Um, I was, no, it would have been more, it would be earlier than that. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you send something to publishers, they take time to read it. Then you have, when they agree to a contract, you have to wait for them to give you the contract. And it just, everything takes a long time. There's a lot of waiting (laughs) comics. And some of that is built in because of the PR machine. Some of it's built in because of printing processes and that stuff. But it is a reality of the process that everything takes a long time. (laughs) And, you know, they wrote the book in probably a a few months. And, you know, we went back and forth. And I do, I wouldn't call them editing passes, but, you know, discussion passes where I'll read it and, and we talk about it and he'll change things. And then there's, he has a waiting process where I have to draw a book and then he gets to come in at the end. Yeah. So it's these kinds of things where it's like, you're not necessarily working on the thing the entire time. When I say five years, it's not like every day I was working on this, <laughs> but it still takes a long time. And it's, it's interesting um, to kind of think about who you were at the beginning of the process versus who you are when the thing comes out. Oh, yes. And I'm actually, I, I'm interested in, in asking you a little bit about that, which is the perfect segue to my second question, which was, <laughs> <laughs> you guys, uh, I don't know who wrote this specifically, but at the end of, of, the, of the book, you mentioned that, uh, like, art is time travel. And I completely agree with that. Um, every time I look at, at something I drew, it's like looking back at a journal entry, and I'm just like, taking back to all of that was happening at that time when I drew it. And I was wondering, like, how does it feel to see this project come to fruition now, knowing that it, like the idea, the baby started like so long ago, it must be kind of a strange feeling because it's a time capsule for you, but for everybody else it's completely new. Yeah, it really is a weird, a weird thing. Cause like, yeah oh god it's so depressing (laughs) no it is it is it's a very I mean it's bittersweet right it's there's there's positives to it because you're kind of reminded about your own or at least I am reminded about like my own dedication to the medium like whenever we finish a project or I finish a project whether it's just something I've drawn or something I've written or something I've co-drawn which I've had all of the above experiences it's always fun to be like, oh, that's what I was interested in at that time. And look how it's synced up with the real world or my personal life, or look how, look what the, look how it's changed and evolved. Like the original like pitch for the, for everyone's tulip was, you know, not insignificantly different than what we ended up making. Mm-hmm. Um, the book itself as it exists is about, like you had said, uh, a young actor who moves to LA to try and make it in Hollywood. And uh, she gets sucked up into the high stakes world of internet performance art videos, which is a real thing, believe it or not. And um, it's kind of about how she deals with this like viral fame and these these uh, burdens that she wasn't initially uh, necessarily prepared for. You know, it, 
the book kind of interrogates questions of like how far would you go in order to get what you want what are you willing to compromise on what are you willing to sacrifice uh, in order to move forward and pursue your dream whatever that may be and um the original idea of the book was probably closer to the Satoshi Kon anime uh, Perfect Blue, uh, mm-hmm. where it, it was more about like the intersection of like someone's literal reality becoming untethered and like Becca as a character in our original version was literally going to, there was going to be two characters. There was going to be a Tulip character and a Becca character, almost kind of maybe Fight club e. Where oh, you know wow. one of them was going to kind of like interact with reality and be this kind of mischievous character, and you know all of that kind of just over the course of us making it, we just kind of didn't like it anymore. So we just kind of <laughs> went in a different direction, <laughs> went in a probably less commercial direction, honestly, where it's just real life people being sad and shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess we can all relate to that feeling, and even to a small scale, like maybe we haven't gone viral or maybe we're not super famous, but I feel like this is a cautionary tale also in, you know, how will you feel when you get whatever it is that you want? And, you know, how is that going to affect you when it happens? You know, I feel yeah. like that's what I, I thought about when I was reading it. Yeah, completely. And, and then what are you willing to do to maintain that, right? Like, mm-hmm. exactly. Have you guys mm-hmm. found yourselves in a position maybe not exactly the same as her, but like in your lives? Oh yeah, completely. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we have this discussion um, a lot about what you would sacrifice for what you want to get in life, which obviously is one of the major themes of the book. And it's something that we've both encountered multiple times. Um, I think especially in creative fields, um, it's something that, there is often times when you have to take opportunities that are not ideal or not what you want as a means to moving forward in the industry you're in or getting further ahead or whatever it is. And then there's times when you get those opportunities and you have to kind of figure out whether they're good enough to counterbalance the fact that you don't want to do them or you're giving something up or what are the downsides of this thing that you're going to pursue for the next however long of your life? Mm-hmm. And um, particularly with a, an industry like comics, where there are a lot of bad contracts and bad deals, um, Dave and I have had to kind of parse out, like, is this thing going to help us enough that we're willing to give up ownership of our idea or spend the next two years making this thing I don't want to make or whatever it is. And it's, it's a fulcrum that you really have to weigh out all of the things that you care about and what's being offered to you and decide what you're willing to, which projects you're willing to take on or which ones you're going to hold out and say, no, I want a better deal, or I would rather do this thing that I care about or whatever, things like that. And when I took this job for DC, the um, Shadow of the Batgirl book, it was one of those moments for me of, I had never planned on doing superhero comics. I didn't read a lot of them before um, the last few years, and I only really wanted to do indie stuff. (laughs) And I got this opportunity, and it was like, do I 
take the risk of being pigeonholed as a superhero artist? Do I take the risk of uh, maybe having a bad deal? Do I take the risk of creating characters that I'll never have ownership for ever or get paid for in the future if they get used again? Versus this opportunity is absolutely gonna put more eyes on my work and have people see it because DC is the second, first largest comics company in North America. <laughs> Depends on, depends on the, depends on the month. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. yeah. So, you know, and I ended up taking it for several reasons. One of them being that if I was going to make superhero comics, this YA line that I was in is kind of the perfect place for me to be. Cause it's this like side stepped version of superhero comics with a lot more freedom in my style stories about young girls kind of trying to find their way in the world. So it's the superhero version of what I make already. And I read Sarah Kuhn's script and I liked it. And so I ended up making the decision to do that. And it was a really good decision for me and for us in terms of, you know, getting our books to people who want to see them. So in the eyes of the industry, unfortunately, doing a book for someone like DC legitimizes you. Yeah. Kind of annoying, but it's a fact of life. But there are other projects where Dave and I, you know, had a chance to make characters that we wanted, but the contract would have been that the company gets ownership of our property. And that was not something we were willing to um, compromise on. Yeah. So you kind of just have to figure out which of these things is a sacrifice you're willing to make, or if it even is a sacrifice, you know, sometimes it's not. But um, that definitely for me has been kind of like, the most specific moment of that. There's been plenty, but. Well, it definitely sounds like a very fine line to be walking all the time with your work. It and I mean, I feel like as artists, we're very protective of our work. So it must feel a little bit like you're giving away a part of your soul when you have to, to um, like box yourself in contracts and all of those types of things. And I can definitely relate to that. It can be, um, it can be really scary. There's a thing in, a lot of comics contracts that says like, I forget the actual wording, but it's like, we now own this publishing through the entire universe. Like literally it says the universe for all time or whatever oh it is. You know, it's, it's, there's these weird things where it's like, some of them are like standard contract language, but they feel like you're never gonna get your thing back or you're never gonna own it or you're gonna, it's just like yeah. everything feels shady and you have to be on it all the time, <laughs> even if it's totally normal. It sounds like you're signing away your soul. <laughs> it feels like that a lot of the time where you're you're dealing with people that you like personally, you know, that you've had multiple conversations with at, at conventions and they're, they're sweethearts. And then you get these contracts and it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> Well, and, and the con comics industry specifically has the history of taking advantage of creators and, yeah. you know, putting people out on their ass when they have, you know, the people who created Superman, like, died poor and alone, basically, because they signed a bad contract at the time. And so then you're left with these properties making millions and billions of dollars for these companies and the people who made them, created them, get nothing. Yeah. It's, very scary. 
is like the story of so many artists and it's it's a very sad one at that mm -hmm. um but going a little bit back to the story uh i actually wanted to ask you something else that i couldn't stop thinking about while i was reading it um and that was that i saw or i felt like there were so many similarities between the story and like real life events um that probably were happening at the time that you created the story which The number one that I kept thinking about was like that Poppy and Titanic Sinclair deal that was happening. I know there's so many videos about like whatever happened and I don't necessarily follow them, but I wanted to ask you if you guys like drew a bit of inspiration from that or, or was that something that just happened at that time that you weren't even aware of when you wrote the story? How did that work? What, what happened yeah, there? Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's a few people that the book is inspired by loosely okay <laughs> uh you know there's there's you know there's a, there's a lot of these kind of virally famous internet influencery type people who have this kind of weird performance art pseudo-political generic anti-capitalist message right it's kind of almost endearing how bland a lot of these people are where it's just kind of like <laughs> capitalism bad and it's, thank you thank you yeah. wow you're so so transgressive capitalism bad yeah but yeah the book is loosely inspired by real life people definitely um but i think it you know hopefully it's not for me to say but hopefully it transcends that right like it 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 evolves past its initial roots into hopefully something much deeper and complex. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I feel like if you're, if you're familiar with that world of weirdo internet performance art people, it's going to be pretty apparent who we're drawing inspiration from. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think it's crazy to be like, hmm, <laughs> I wonder if these two flower named characters are, influences on each other yeah. <laughs> well and and you know like maybe at that time when you wrote it it was a little bit more or at least less mainstream but I feel even now with like TikTok and, and just everybody's social media persona we're all always just putting on a show for everybody so everybody would you say, can feel would you say would you say that everyone is tulip <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we, we, we finished the podcast right here. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's almost like that's like a central theme of the book that relates to the title in some way. Yes, yes. I could never have seen that coming. <laughs> that's the, the TikTok meme. It's almost like, it's almost like that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, well, you, you're saying there's definitely uh, some inspirations drawn from real life people. And another thing I wanted to ask you is, was uh, your decision to set the story in Hollywood or like the Hollywood sphere, like on, on purpose completely? Or did you also think about other places you would like it to happen, but didn't end up sticking to the story? Um, yeah, I don't think we ever really talked about setting it somewhere else. I mean, in in the book the main character becca is from arizona um which is where i'm from 
which is, you know. I can tell you love that place. <laughs> oh, it's the best. It's the fucking best. I love meth. Meth oh, is the man. best. Sounds so lovely. Just oh. the top tier people, you know? Oh, yeah, man. We got... We got the bigots, we got the meth heads, we got the, the people who are just waiting to go into the military when they turn 18. Oh my God. Oh, it's just the best. Love that place. Yeah. Miss you, AZ. <laughs> um, no, but the, the so that, that part of it is, you know, I think that there's, there's a little bit of autobiography in everything we make, right? Like there's a little bit of Nicole and a little bit of me and then a little bit of bullshit that we've made up. And uh, I don't, recall us having any conversations about setting it anywhere other than Hollywood. I feel like that was kind of germane to the idea from almost from the very beginning. Well, I think because Becca's goal is not to be a YouTube star when she comes to LA. Her goal is to be an actor. Um, when you think of where do people go when they want to be an actor, it's like yes, yeah, LA or sometimes New York, depending if you yeah. want to be on Broadway, maybe. <laughs> um, so it really like the book is about the industry. It's about that these weird pockets of it that you are kind of unexpected. It's about obviously viral fame and, you know, internet famous relates to the process of becoming like a movie star too. It's not the same thing. And it happens at a much quicker rate, which it makes it much weirder and stranger of a transition for people. But, you know, it is a commentary on both of those industries as well as a bunch of other industries. But, you know, yeah. I think it made sense. There, there was never a question of like, should this be somewhere else? That's awesome. Like when you're making something the certainties are always the best things because you, <laughs> you're not worrying about those things so yeah. that's like super cool and i also wanted to know i mean you are both illustrators right uh but i wanted to know if like maybe you nicole kind of uh well i think you said it when you were talking about you had some sessions where you would give feedback to dave but like uh do you dave sometimes participate in the drawing process and do you nicole sometimes like really heavily participate in the writing process or do you guys kind of like let uh, the other one do their main thing and then uh go from there yeah i mean it, it depends on the book um there's varying levels of participation on both sides for those things um Generally, the way that it works with the writing stuff is that Dave and I will come up with an idea, a rough idea, either he'll be like, it'd be cool if we did this, or I'll think of like, hey, look, I drew this thing, like, what if we made a book about this, which I think in this case, I was really psyched about some of these YouTubers and was like, it would be really weird to like dive into this world um, and make a book out of it. And then, you know, we'll have talks when Dave and I were planning this book we were actually we went to um, Thought Bubble which is a convention in England and then we traveled around uh, to a couple of different cities and we spent the whole trip just talking about what this idea would be so we spent a lot of time just discussing it before Dave ever sits down to write and then we came home he sat down to write it I will do a reading pass or a couple reading passes and then we sit and we have discussions of like I don't know if I feel like this character would do that or we need, you know, an initial stages. We, Becca and uh, Eve, her roommate, really there was no 
friendly connection between them. There was no reason for them to like be together or like each other at all. And I was like, they need to you know, bond at points. It's really weird that nobody in this story likes each other or whatever it is. So we'll talk about that stuff. Sometimes Dave changes it. Sometimes he does it because it's a discussion. Um, Most of the time I change it though. Like there's very few times where I'm just like, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but the reverse is true too. Where like, I, for the most part, will just sit down and draw the thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I usually show him my thumbnails. I show him my pencils before I ink them. Um, and often, not often, occasionally Dave will see, say like, oh, that doesn't really work or this might be better this way. And a lot of the time I'm like, this is the way I like it. <laughs> and then I will go change it later. <laughs> yeah, that, that is definitely what it is. It, nine times out of 10, I'm like, I don't know if that works. This is a little strange right here. And you're like, yeah. no. Mm -mm. And then two days later, you'll send me the page changed. And I'm like, mm, that, that works. <laughs> it works better now. I'm a little bit stubborn when it comes to that stuff. I mean, um, it's hard. See, I mean, is, drawing, you know, it takes so long. <laughs> it takes yeah. forever. But it the good thing about forever. that is that Nicole, of the two of us, is the better illustrator. So whenever she says, this is how it's going to be, I I don't have an ego about it because I don't have a leg to stand on. I can't be like, and no, I'm just... <laughs> it's her. She's no, the... you just have 20 years of comics experience over me, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah, and which one of us, which one of us has created characters that live in the Batman universe right now? That's not <laughs> this guy, not this guy. And you know, talking a little bit about the art, I love that. It's so hard, I feel, to find art that stands out or that looks different sometimes when you're reading, you know, comics. And this was just delicious for me to <laughs> to, to see. <laughs> I love, you know, the the little details that you put into everything. And I, I, you know, I read the page, but then I would go back and, you know, watch and, and see what, what you did, your strokes and everything. And obviously maybe I pay a lot of attention to that because I like to draw as well. Um, but how do you um, decide on, on what the visual language is going to be? Like, how do you decide what the style is going to be for the comic? Yeah, I mean, we do, or I do rather, um, a, a decent amount of kind of, I call it R&D, <laughs> uh, where I, you know, I, I draw the characters, I kind of try and figure out stuff, but, and I hate to say this because it sounds like a cop-out, but a lot of it is just like, I drew it and that's how it came out. <laughs> um, obviously, I, I do some tests, I do some character designs, we talk about them, I change them. But a lot of it is just that I have been drawing my entire life. And I always talk about how it would be cool to be a teacher, but I don't think I could do it because so much of it is just instinct at this point. Like, I don't even always know what I'm doing. I have a lot of decisions that I make where I'm like, oh, wow, that worked out well because of this and this. <laughs> After the fact where I'm like, oh. And, and that's not to say I'm not intentional about what I'm making, I am. But um, it's kind of a combination of, I think I want to make the book look like this. And especially, you know, there was some grounds for research on this. We're referencing certain things that already exist in the world. Um, but, you know, you want to give every book its own flair and your own personal flair to it. Um, and it, it just comes from 
doing the thing. I feel like a lot of the time I draw a book, you know, I started drawing books that are roughly 180, 200 pages now. I always feel like I don't figure it out until I'm like 40 pages, 40 to 80 pages in. That's when I feel like I figured it out. Wow. And that's so scary bad. because, you know, there's a big chunk of that book in the beginning where you're kind of winging it. <laughs> um, and that'll get less and less, I guess, hopefully, as I continue to make books. But, you know, that's like an entire mini comic before I've even figured out really what I'm doing which is not something I'm necessarily proud of, <laughs> but, um, you know, you take your time. You know, I went to art school. I made a lot of mini comics and stuff before I got to this point. And all of that process was figuring out what these things would look like. And, you know, you just totally kind of think about what you're trying to say when you design something and then uh, you go and do it, which, it's a little scary. <laughs> well, and for this book specifically, we did have certain stylistic remits that we had talked about in the beginning, you know, like not only the stuff that was mine from real life, but we had this idea of like the duality of mm -hmm. Tulip versus Becca. And when she's Tulip, her, her illustration style would be more like a shoujo manga. When mm -hmm. she's Becca, it would be more like an American indie comic. Um, you know, whenever the internet and or Tulip appears in a page it would have this kind of light blue uh visual motif to everything which plays into the book thematically so there were there were some like are absolutely intentional decisions being made as i make anything yeah um and and more so probably for this book because there is this duality of the book mm -hmm. um but i would say overall it, it ends up being more instinct than it is uh you know, intention, which sounds bad. <laughs> I don't mean it like that, but. Um, Bottom wait, line, you're um, saying you just run on, on pure talent and see how it goes. <laughs> well, they, they, practice. I mean, they say, they, they always say about acting, right? Acting is reacting and illustration is kind of the same way, except you're reacting against yourself, right? Yeah. Or I guess yeah. in your case, it's you're reacting against the script that I've written Yes. based on the story that we've created where you're kind of like you're bouncing off of that thing and so the decisions that you're making it sounds like it's you know the way you're saying it you're it sounds like you're just kind of it's flowing it's out of you but it but it is it's a reaction it's not winging it it's a reaction to what the story is presenting i was i was there was someone on twitter or a podcast that i was listening to recently where they were talking about how the page tells you what it needs to be. And mm -hmm. a lot of the time I am figuring out what the drawing needs to be as I'm drawing it. And there are things within the drawing or within that space or within the script that's informing me what the thing needs to be. And, you know, you can make these kinds of ideas. Like I think before the book, stylistically, I'm gonna go in this direction or I wanna try doing something scratchier i want to try, try doing something more simplified because it makes sense in terms of story this or that but a lot of times i will start a book that way and then think you know this doesn't really work for the story or i thought i was going to be able to do it this way and it ends up not being the right solution for what's on the page for what's in the story and your hand and 
the, the characters tell you what it needs to be and what it needs to look like. And that's a very hard thing to describe or to kind of explain to someone or instruct someone how to do that. But I think it is a truism for most comic artists or most thoughtful comic artists, I guess. Every yeah. comic book artist that's not Greg Land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I'm sure like even if you if you plan every single detail of how you want the style to look, the moment you put your hand to, you know, the paper or the tablet, it's completely going to be different than what you have in your head. Absolutely. You know, I have this thing. I have, you know, all these favorite comic artists who don't draw like me. <laughs> and I'm like, I wish I could draw like that. I'm going to try and do this person's style or something more extreme or exaggerated like this person's style. And I do have this thing where like when I sit down to draw a comic, maybe it's that I'm not pushing myself hard enough. Maybe it's that that thing doesn't fit for the story I'm telling. But a lot of time, that thing that I want to do will morph into something else on the page because it's being filtered through me. Yeah. You know, and you can push yourself in one direction or other. And sometimes that works, but often it's going to be an amalgam of what you think it should be or what you want it to be. And the realities of the life you've lived and the skills you've developed. Um, so it's going to be both of those things put together. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when you're in art school and uh, kind of a budding artist, there's such a fixation on style and what you want your style to be and which way you should push yourself. And there is a certain extent to which you can control that. Absolutely. But there's a certain extent of your drawings are going to come out how they're going to come out. And yeah. Yeah. that is all kind of letting go and letting your drawings be what they are, I think is a really important part of becoming an artist, quote unquote, which, you know, I hate this idea of you're not an artist until you've gotten jobs or been a professional or something like that. I think that's stupid, but um, I agree. <laughs> um, this, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, coming into your own as an artist, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to also ask, uh, when writing a story like this or even illustrating a story like this, and you spend so many years doing it, uh do you ever end up like having a favorite character it doesn't necessarily have to be the, the main character I feel like sometimes when I create things I fall in love with maybe a side character or a cameo or something like that do I, you guys have that do, who is your you, favorite I, one I bet you that both I think I don't I, I think I, I know this one. yeah okay we'll, we'll say it on three but I'm pretty sure we have the same favorite side character oh okay <laughs> okay three two one PD. Yep, PD. Yeah, full <laughs> well, he's done. He's my favorite. He's I was. Favorite. I don't know why I thought you were going to say Chloe because that one's my favorite. One. I mean, Chloe's great. I love yeah. her. But Dave and I are. Uh, we just love Pete. He's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to Petey hang out with sure. that dude. <laughs> yeah. For for context, in the book, the main character is Becca, and her the kind of pseudo antagonist is. The guy who makes these videos, Stanley, who works under this uh, pseudonym of Paradox XL, and uh, uh, there's a costume designer that's kind of a supporting character that builds all of the couture outfits that Becca wears in the videos, and she's a running character through the whole book. 
but specifically her son, her like eight-year-old or six-year-old, however the fuck old he is, son, Pete. Uh, he just wants to he just wants to hang out and eat shitty fast food. And uh, that's really it. He just he, wants to eat shitty fast food, man. He's the most relatable one out of everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I think there is a specific patina to a lot of the culture and a lot of the people in LA, which mm-hmm. I don't think is necessarily relatable to the general public Petey's sure. relatable to everyone yeah for sure <laughs> yeah, if there's yeah. somebody that everyone's gonna be like yeah that could be me it's going to be him yeah yeah he's also just like a really like he's just a, a weird funny little kid I don't know mm-hmm. it, it, especially the way like Nicole drew him he's just so much more likable and, and adorable than I would have thought he would have been because on the page he's kind of he's kind of that but he's also kind of annoying like he's kind of just like i don't want to go over here i just want to eat shiver me burgers i That's don't want to do right like they're annoying but they're cute yeah so. exactly yeah <laughs> yeah he's awesome though i i love that guy you capture that perfectly for sure yeah yeah i i it's it's like a it's like a i don't want to say weekly but it's a semi-regular occurrence where i'm like should do a spin-off comic just about Pete. I wonder what he's getting up to. What he's doing these days. We're probably gonna end up in another story at some point. Yeah. Maybe even I, as I, a cameo or something. That would be yeah, fun. totally. Yeah. 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 Did we like- put we've put we've put other characters in other books before, but did we are there are there any cameos in Tulip? I don't think so. There's there's like world building cameos because in all yeah, of our so- other books. Okay, you do a lot of There's Shiver Me Burgers, which is the uh, fast, it's like a, a, I just said this name before, the um, Long John Silver's style uh, pirate themed fast food restaurant that Becca works in. And that restaurant shows up in multiple of our other books. So it's like 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 an Easter egg? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, and sometimes it's more than an Easter egg. Sometimes it's just like the main location <laughs> of all the other books. It's just like, all right, we're going to get fast food. Let's go to Shiver Me Burgers now. It's in at least like three of our other books. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, it, you are creating a, a universe, and when you connect certain places with different stories, it, it, it feels good. I feel like it's just satisfying, yeah. at least yeah, for the creators. Yeah, no, it is, totally. I mean, especially like, yeah, it's like it's Shivering Burgers, and there's like a there's like a fake comic book character who had a movie franchise called The Lurker, and he's in all of our books. And there's always like weird little like in the book that we just finished for Simon and Schuster, there's a bunch of weird little Easter eggs about like the guy who created The Lurker is buried in the old like shitty rundown cemetery in the town that the book takes place in. So like. If you're familiar with our other books, you're like, oh, fuck, that's the guy who made the lurker that's in all of those other books. Uh, and if you're not, it won't mean anything because it's just like a little call out caption on like a tombstone that's just like, this is the guy who created the lurker. And it's like, uh, okay, I, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Tell me more about whatever this actual story is. Well, um, but pe- people who enjoy your, your work will definitely appreciate that. It's always nice. I mean, honestly, are there people that enjoy it? I don't know. It's mostly just for me and Nicole, really. <laughs> this is really just like, this is funny. <laughs> There's a lot of like back of the throat laughing and snickering while drawing. Mm. That's that's kind of the, the, the feeling of the entire Goo Baker 
book universe, <laughs> whatever, whatever it's called, the, the fuck off squad of or whatever. I don't know. I mean, the number of times that Dave laughs at his own jokes, it's. <laughs> I, that's why I can't proofread anything with her in the same room anymore because she'll just like, she'll just like side eye me whenever I'm like proofing stuff or like fixing typos in scripts or on finished pages. Cause I'll start laughing at the pages cause I haven't seen it in like fucking eight months or some shit. So I don't even remember the jokes. And of course I'm going to think they're funny because <laughs> I wrote them. And then Nicole's just like, you're so fucking narcissistic thinking your, your own jokes are funny. And he's like, no, it's not that. It's that I have the memory of a fucking goldfish and can't remember anything. So they're like completely new jokes to me. <laughs> I can't even begin to imagine what it is to work uh, collaborating with somebody else. I, I, personally, I'm sort of, I mean, my podcast is called The Lonely Artist Podcast. Come on, I'm right, right. always doing everything alone, but it must be, well, I don't know how it is for but is you. That, but is that by choice though? Do you uh, prefer not, not, not really, no. It's just because I've always lived in places where there isn't truly any kind of community that I uh, relate to, specifically here art. Uh, and I was starting to get that in Toronto and, you know, I had to leave because of the pandemic, but... Uh, but I, I wonder for you guys, is it like, is it a problem or is, do you guys just like are in sync at all times when you're collaborating? How, how, how often do you guys find yourself like, you know, getting a bit angry at each other or are you always like, yeah, yeah, we're totally cool. Everything is in sync. Everything's working. Dave and I are, you know, it is hard to find a collaborator who you can work with without conflict all the time. Mm -hmm. And I would say 95% of the time we agree on stuff. Um, usually the only part of the process that we really have any conflict on is the beginning when Dave pitches me some dumb idea and I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then he just tells me more about it. And then I'm like, okay, cool. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't even say that that's conflict though. That's just no. like, no, it's not. Yeah. I feel like yeah, I don't think that there is much conflict. I think that's, but for context though, like Nicole and I started making comics because I was making a web comic called Action Hospital. Um, mm -hmm. And the way that book is structured, uh, it's the, the web comic has since been collected into three volumes, uh, which you can buy on the internet if that's something you're into. Uh, it's basically the high concept is like, it's a it's a hospital that services otherworldly beings or people with extreme needs and and all of the characters in the hospital are paired with individual artists and even though it is a medical procedural it's not really it's more just like an adventure comic that's really depressing it's like it's about people being sad and also having superpowers and being in a fucking hospital like it's not really even like er or anything so the way it's structured is all the artists are paired with individual characters. So whenever the characters show up, the artists all draw on the pages together. So I would organize parties at my house where I would have like six, seven, 10 people over and we would, I would pass around pages and I'd be like, all right, so I drew the, I drew the construction lines for this one, but I need you to draw this person here. I need you to draw that thing there. And, oh, you got to draw this monster that you did, did two issues ago. I need you to put this monster again in this panel. And so that's kind of how Nicole and I became friends is we were, we were, you know, hanging out spending time together and then i saw her sketchbooks and was like you're fucking amazing you should make comics and then we we made a couple of these little mini comics for action hospital and she kind of like learned the ropes i guess 
of because drawing and drawing comics are two different skills yeah. uh unfortunately and so she kind of like figured that out in concert with all of my other friends when we were all working on this stuff together and um you know, I love all those people and I'm still really good friends with all those people. Uh, but only one of those people I've signed book deals with and uh, toured across the literal world with and made like six books with, you know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. once you find somebody that you really click with, that you have similar interests with, that's when you like go for it. And also like to be fucking real, I wish I could draw like Nicole. Like if I, uh, the, the stuff Nicole draws that I write, that's what I wish I could draw. But I can't really, the, the visual language of my illustration lexicon isn't versatile enough to be able to make like two people sitting on a couch look cool. So I have to draw like robot arms and people shooting lasers out of their eyes and dumb shit like that. Um, well, and the other aspect of this is that Dave, writes plenty of stories that are things that I have no interest in drawing, mm -hmm. but he writes them for other people. So when he writes for me, it's A, collaborative from the very beginning, and B, he, he writes what I want to draw. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if he wants to tell a story about post-apocalyptic Venezuela and a police state, he asks Alexis Zirit to draw that. If he wants to draw a story about skater kids or write a story about skater kids who are sitting around complaining about relationships, then we talk about it and make something. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot less um, opportunity for conflict when you're working with someone who you know what they want to make and you make that thing together. Yeah. It's almost kind of like casting a movie, mm -hmm. right? Like, like Nicole's the movie star and I'm the like, I'm the like fledgling producer screenwriter in the I'm the Ed Wood in the corner going Mr. Bella Lugosi please be in my moving picture please it's about sad people standing in rooms with wind blowing through their hair wistfully staring out windows please it sounds super goes, symbiotic like she has the artistic abilities you want and he draws for you like whatever it is that you feel like drawing so you know it, it works pretty well for you guys yeah and also you can tell like you can tell the stuff that Nicole gets excited about drawing, or at least I can. And then I'm like, okay, how do I, for the next project, how do I like hardwire that into the script? Like, what are the beats? And I mean, I, I said that jokingly, but I, it genuinely is true. Like, what are the sad moments where people are standing, looking around wistfully? Like Nicole does that better than anybody. Like this, there's a scene in <laughs> Tulip where she's like, literally standing on a balcony the wind is literally flowing through her hair and she's looking out over the city and it's beautiful it's like yeah. the, the best splash page you've ever fucking seen in your life <laughs> but if that was a car chase it would have been dog shit because she would have been like i don't want to fucking do this stupid fucking car chase i'm really bad at cars sorry oh, guys man. Yeah, yeah. Like, better. <laughs> like but that's just not something that she is interested in doing and, and i'm aware of that and yeah don't write that for her i just write like yeah. All right, so this is the poignant, sad scene where people are sad and poignant. Okay. Yeah, I love that. That's really cool that you guys consider that about each other. And that's still super awesome. Um, I feel like everybody would benefit from finding their own collaborative tribe of people, for sure. I mean, I feel like, I feel like a lot of comics would be better if the writers knew their artists more but because mm -hmm. the, the deadlines are so tight and because a lot of the times you just get paired up by editors it just doesn't happen like on the star trek book that i wrote for idw which was a great experience the book came out wonderful 
but I don't know Angel Hernandez from fucking Joe Blow down the street. I've literally never met the guy. I don't even I don't even have his email address because the way IEW does it, they just they want everything compartmentalized and they want you to just yeah. deal with your editor. Which look, <laughs> they have the Star Trek license. They get to do that. That's totally well within their rights. And you know, I tried to look at a bunch of Angel's work and reverse engineer what I thought he would want to draw, and he fucking knocked it out of the park. So. If he didn't want to draw what I wrote, he did a great job. Um, <laughs> you can't but do I, tell. <laughs> no, I can't. I mean, yeah, but I, but I, I don't know if he likes six panel grids or hates six panel grids. I have no fucking idea. Um, yeah. Well, and the other side of that is that you know, in the last year or so, I've been offered multiple opportunities that, on paper, are great opportunities and possibly they're really good scripts. I haven't read all of them, but people came to me with completed pitches or scripts and said, basically, do you want to draw this? And that's great. And sometimes there's absolutely a good reason to do that. Sometimes it might be the best experience of your life. You really connect with it or whatever. But for me, I feel like the project is always going to be so much better when you, as an artist, get to be part of it from inception. Yeah. And that's not to say I'm never going to take one of these projects. I absolutely will. And I have um, many times, but I think that when you have the opportunity to be collaborative from the beginning, to be part of that process, not only does it make the work better, but it makes you feel like it's yours. You have ownership over it in a way that, you know, when someone is just offering you something like, I don't know, maybe an adaptation. So here, draw Dracula or whatever, you know, it's like, cool. But that already existed before mm -hmm. I was even asked about this. So it's not mine in the same way. Mm -hmm. It can absolutely still be, and you can put your thumbprint on it and you are part of the creative process and you are creating what the characters look like in the world and all of these things, absolutely still. But there's just like a little less ownership when yeah. you didn't get to be like, well, what if the story was like this? Or, you know, I want to make a thing about this over here. Yeah. You know, you might not, I mean, obviously you will care about it, but you might not care about it that much or be as invested. And it's not the same when it's like, let's make a baby together rather than here's my baby, raise it, you know? It's, it's, it's yeah. Different. And that's not to say that parents aren't great parents or care about their kids as much. They absolutely do, but it's not exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. I, I understand that to totally. And, you know, I was wondering, do you have like a specific message that you want people to take away from the story when they read it? Yeah, I think that there definitely is. I'm, I'm a little reticent to confirm what I think that is just because I feel like when someone reads it, if they hear this, then it'll it limits the potential interpretation of it. Um, but for me, the way it ends, it has a very specific ending. And for me, that ending is very clear, <laughs> if that makes sense. Does that make sense of what I'm saying? Like it has yeah. a very, it has a point that it is, that it is, the characters are making choices that even if we don't see the next 10 years of the characters' lives, the choices that they've made are going to dictate the next foreseeable future, which is a metaphor in and of itself that mm -hmm. somewhat works as the thesis statement of the piece. 
I love and that you said that. I, and people who read it will understand what you're saying, but you left it ambiguous enough for people who are listening <laughs> to be like, wait, what? Yeah, what? exactly. Like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what? That, that, those aren't words. It was just like thought salad. What the fuck was that? Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm a little, you know, I'm a little reticent to just pin something down and say, oh, this is what this means and this is what that means. Because I think there is a beauty in, in creating work that asks questions and not having the answers, or if you do have the answers, not broadcasting the answers. It's like, that's what I love so much about a lot of Charlie Kaufman's work or uh, a lot of the Coen brothers work or my boy, old Davy Lynch. I love David Lynch. I love when everybody asks him like, like hey, what is Eraserhead about? He goes, mm, yes, Eraserhead. That is my most spiritual film. Uh, could you elaborate on that, David? No. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's like my favorite interaction ever. And it happens like every time someone does a Q&A with him. You'd think after 40 years, they would have just stopped asking him, what is Eraserhead about? Because he always just says, it's my most spiritual film. Can you elaborate on that? No. <laughs> I love it. I love well, it's, it. It's good to treat the readers as, you know, intelligent human beings and not just give them all the answers. So I think that's that's great that you left it like that for people to interpret it how they, however they want to interpret it, which they're going to be doing anyway. Like even if you tell them, you know, what you think it is about, everybody's going to have a different perspective on it for yeah. sure. Um, I wanted to uh, ask, where do people, where can people purchase or download your your work, uh, including Everyone Is Tulip, of course. Yeah, so Everyone Is Tulip will be available in comic book stores on June sixteenth and bookstores on June 29th. You can also pre-order it right now, um, and then it's being serialized online at everyoneistulip.com. So you can read it for free or what's up there. It's three pages a week. And then for the rest of our stuff, um, you can get most of it at my website at NicoleGu.com. And then um, you can find me on Twitter at NicoleGu on, or yeah, at NicoleGu and then Instagram at NGU. And my last name is spelled G-O-U-X. And uh, you can find me and my other comics at HeyDaveBaker.com. I'm on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at xdavebakerx. And if you want to listen to more of me being an idiot, I too have a podcast. Uh, you do? Called, <laughs> yes, I do. It's called Deep Cuts. It's an explainer podcast uh, where my friend Andrew Price and I pick a topic and then walk the listener through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so they can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at their next forced social function. Uh, <laughs> we do lots of weird topics. We did, a, we did an entire two hour musical with 11 original songs that we both sang about the rise and fall of the Napster file sharing service. Um, we did an episode about the cult film from the 80s, Buckaroo Banzai, where at the end of the episode, we got Earl MacRoush and W.D. Richter, the director and writer of the movie, to come back and write a 10-minute radio play with characters from the movie. And we got actors from the movie to appear in the narrative sequence, Pepe Serna and Billy Vera, respectively. Um, yeah, we've done Incredible. a bunch of weird stuff. It's, uh, it's pretty fun. Uh, but, you know, everyone is Tulip. Available Kava stores everywhere. June <laughs> <laughs> Well, I like to finish every podcast with this question. Might be a silly one, but I always ask it. So uh, what 
would you like to have as a magical power to help you in your creative process if you could choose whatever magical pro uh, power you could have? I think I'm going to go super speed. Mm. <laughs> like if I could draw comics faster, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Dave? Mm. Mm, that's a good question. I think and it has to be specifically related to making stuff. Yeah, right? just the creative yeah. process. The creative Maybe process. multiple arms. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do love drawing dudes with four arms. Yeah. That probably wouldn't be as helpful as super speed. But I kind of just, I would love the idea that I would have four arms. I don't know why. But yeah. I, that's something that really fascinates me. Like, I really like multi-armed characters. But imagine Maybe you have four arms, but your brain's still the same, so you can't actually use all of them. <laughs> I can still just use one at a time. It's like, this isn't what I was expecting. No! Quickly doodle limbs that don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good well, thing I'm you, not a what genie. <laughs> what, do you, what do you usually say? Me? Uh, I think I always say, like being able to stop time because the one thing that bothers me about drawing is that no matter how streamlined you are with your work how efficient you are you always have to sit for hours and hours on end to create something it's, it's mm. impossible not to so yeah probably to stop time so i could actually sleep mm. 12 hours and finish all my work in the schedule that i like to follow that would be nice <laughs> not having to sleep would either be the greatest thing ever or you it would be the worst yeah I'm pretty bad <laughs> I love sleep I mean too that's like the perfect reset button it's like if the day is great you finish it you're rested if the day is horrible you're like okay goodbye let's just turn off for a little bit and then you wake up it's a new day so I'd I think like that to, makes sense for you yeah, to keep sleeping <laughs> yeah come on I mean I, I don't sleep that much as it is <laughs> just out here like it's 4 a.m i should probably go to sleep soon but look i'm drawing these monsters sleep deprivation is like the fuel for creativity probably yeah pretty much i mean look man i'm like a fucking human raccoon like come on <laughs> <laughs> well i can't really like good thing is that zoom calls never show like the hd camera because everybody looks super fucked up all the time especially now that we're at home so it's oh, yeah. fine. We can't see your dark circles. No worries. You look beautiful, Dave. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 